welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host, Mono, here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. This episode, we are wrapping up 2023 by discussing Game of the Year. I'm joined by Josh from the Still Loading Podcast to chat about our favorite games we played this year, both new titles and retro gems. And this episode's feature is about Japanese gaming pamphlets. You can find dozens of these free at game stores all over Japan, so I'll break down what's inside these cool pieces of gaming media. And as always, we'll wrap up with the news, including my most anticipated games from the Game Awards. Let's start with the Game of the Year 2023 with Josh from the Still Loading Podcast. Tokyo Game Life, only on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Twenty twenty three is coming to an end, so there's only one thing left to do: close out an excellent year of gaming with the Game of the Year awards. But it's no fun to just do it alone, so I brought on a special returning guest. So, guest, please introduce yourself. Oh, guess who's back? It's me, your favorite returning. I have no idea. I'm not going to put that monitor. <laughs> Somebody's myself. favorite Hello, returning everybody. guest. Someone. <laughs> I'm my own favorite returning guest. <laughs> no, Mono. Thank you so much. I am Josh, the host of the Still Loading Podcast. Thank you for having me on again. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Longtime listeners might remember you were my guest on last year's Game of the Year mm-hmm. episode. And both of us had, I would say, rather unconventional picks. So if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I'm hoping you'll get to hear some goatee lists that you haven't heard anywhere else. But to be honest, mine are kind of safer this time around. What about you, Josh? Am I going to be shocked by your Game of the Year list? Probably. They're Mm. all over the place. Once again, as it was the same with last year, I don't think one of mine came out within the last two or three years just because I (laughs) generally don't have time to play modern games. So uh, mine is very eclectic. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, listeners, there's no real hard rule in what needs to be our game of the year for 2023. If you played a game for the first time in 2023 and loved it, you can put it on your game of the year list. I won't be that strict. All of mine did release in 2023, so we'll get to it when we get to it. But the format for this year, similar to what we did last year where we count down our top five games, but I'm introducing something new this year, something I'm going to call the Omake Awards. Omake is the Japanese word for something you get for free when you make a purchase. So think of these as bonus categories for you, the listener. We each made up five Omake Awards. Josh and I have completely different categories that we made up. Some are serious. Some are not serious, but it's an opportunity to mention anything from this year that we want to talk about. And after the Omake Awards, then we will get into our big boy Game of the Year discussion. So Josh, you have guessed right. What is your first Omake Award? So my first Omake Award is the game that didn't live up to its hype. Uh, There... There's a game I played this year. In fact, this year I'm I'm pleasantly s- surprised at how many games I actually beat. I beat like 20 some odd games, which Ooh. I can say I, I can't remember the last time I did that since becoming a parent. So one of those games that I did play, and it's the game that didn't live up to its hype, was the Stanley Parable. Mm. It was one of those things where I think for the time, what it did for game design is revolutionary and very interesting and People hadn't seen anything like it when it came out in 2012 or 2011 or whatever year that was. But playing it in 2023, I've seen tons of other games that do similar things to the choices it makes in the game. I played it and I was just very underwhelmed. And I was kind of bummed by that because I I know people really enjoy that game. But yeah, so that was my game that didn't live up to a type. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny when you play a game that you know it's very important, but it's been copied so many times that when you go yeah. back to the that game, it loses a bit of its luster. For example, I played Abzu. I don't know if you know what Abzu is, but yes, that's the sim from that's Austin Wintory did the music for that. Oh, yes, it's kind of underwater journey. It's not the same yes. game developers, but it's kind of like that. See, I played Abzu, and then I played Journey. So when I played Journey, I just thought, okay, this is not as good as Abzu. So the the impact of Journey was lost on me because I've already played something that was similar to that. So it's of no fault of Stanley Parable. I just didn't get to experience it when it was fresh. And now I've seen so many games that kind of ask those same questions of you that it just kind of underwhelmed me when Mm. I played it. All right, well, my first Omake Award, this is very specific for me, but I picked Best Nintendo-Themed Food that I bought at the convenience store in 2023. Mm. And I'm going to give it to the Banana Chocolate Pikmin Ice Cream Sandwich. It's called, I believe in Japanese, it's called Kawasubari Banana Chokosando. And it's basically just kind of a brownie ice cream sandwich where the chocolate is, it's a good mix of the soft brownie part, but it also has hard chocolate, And then in the middle is banana cream. Now, it doesn't sound Mm. so amazing. It's just a banana cream chocolate ice cream sandwich. But I don't know what they put into it. But it was so good. I had it maybe two or three times. And this is a very limited item. They only sold it for about a week or two. So I'd eat three times in a week. I think that's probably not recommended. But it was just that good. (laughs) And listeners, if you're not sure why is there a Pikmin sandwich, I think we did talk about it on our Pikmin episode that you were on. There was a big campaign at Family Mart where they had a lot of Pikmin-themed food and a lot of Pikmin-themed goods that you could buy at Family Mart. And this was definitely the standout food item. It sounds delicious. I kind of wish I could try one. Yeah, and there was some other competition. You might think, well, was there really that much Nintendo food? Yes, there was. There was a Zelda (laughs) fried chicken at Lawson, (laughs) and there was a Kirby jelly drink that was actually quite good. That might be the runner-up. Now, and, please, did they call it fried cuckoo at least, or cuckoo, or however you pronounce it? Yeah, it was spicy. It wasn't cuckoo. It's just kind of generic meat or bird, okay. generic bird meat. So they do have like the image of the food from the game on the box. It's kind of a popcorn chicken, a spicy popcorn chicken. And there was also Zelda banana milk. But I think the, the Pikmin ice cream sandwich is heads above everything else. So, Josh, what is your next Omake Award? My next Omake Award, some of these are going to be appearing on my top five list, just as a little hint. And my favorite hidden gem game is Sheep Raider, which is a Looney Hmm. Tunes puzzle platformer. And I'm going to save all the reasons why. I'll talk about why it's a hidden gem when we get to where I have it on my rankings, because it it does appear in my top five. But uh, yeah, that was my favorite hidden gem game that I played this year. Okay, so it's actually Looney Tunes. I thought when you said Looney Tunes, I thought you meant kind of inspired by Looney no, Tunes. but it's straight it's, up Looney Tunes. I guess I can get into my next Omake Award. I'm going to give it to Best Fire Emblem Engage Character, and I'm going to give the award to Yunaka. I have never even played a Fire Emblem game. I mm. do own... I want to say Fire Emblem Awakening for the 3DS, and I own Fire Emblem Three Houses for the Switch. Haven't touched them yet. I got to get around to it at some point, but they're long games. And I think the reason I didn't touch Three Houses yet is because I started working my way through Octopath Traveler, and I still haven't beaten that game. That's a long game. But I didn't want to start another long JRPG 
before I finished Octopath. So it's it's on the list. But no, I have not played a Fire Emblem game. Mm. Well, Yunaka, she's basically a typical thief character. That's just her class. And it's interesting because typically in Fire Emblem, you have a class and then you upgrade your class to something else. But mm-hmm. ironically, Yunaka is best if she never upgrades her class. So she's just a thief hmm. the entire game. And you might think that's a little boring because you want to see that progression. But just the way the character's skills are, she's just so useful and fun to use in battle. She's something what a lot of people describe as a dodge tank, where people who oh, attack her, okay. but she can't take the damage because she has low HP or whatever. But she can dodge many, many attacks, so they won't even hit her. Uh, so an enemy will attack, let's say, three times in a row, but she dodges every single one. It's the same as if she just got hit and then took zero damage each time. She has really high DPS, and she's just so versatile to use. Then you could also really build her up to be a critical hit machine. So mm-hmm. you could, if you really fiddle with these stats a lot, she can hit critical hit pretty much every time, which is really ridiculous. So she's critting all the enemies, and then she's just not getting hit. She can be borderline invincible at times, which is really fun. <laughs> and she has such a really fun personality. She has a very bright disposition, but she's also an assassin. So when she d- does her critical hit attack she has something like very scary and serious to say and she has a really fun design she's kind of wearing this black cat suit and a cape and she's got this wavy red hair and weird stars on her face and at the main hub in between battles everyone switches their costumes and she's wearing a cardigan a wool cardigan which seems so anachronistic for like a medieval sword and sorcery fantasy game but it's just Mm -hmm. so funny to see her walking around in like a skirt and a sweater she bought at the Gap. Very funny character and very useful in battle. So I was always excited to use her in Fire Emblem Engage. That's a game that I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about since it came out in January, but it is a very good game. So Josh, what is your next Omake Award? All right, so my next Omake Award, and this is the game I am most sad that I didn't buy, and that is Super Mario Wonder. I am so sad that I don't have this game yet. I've heard nothing but good things. Both I have have listened to the episodes of your show that you talked about it, and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. So yeah, I'm I'm just sad, Mono. I'm sad. It's the (laughs) game I'm most sad that I did not buy. Mm. Well, you might hear about it later on in this episode, so we'll see. I would assume so. (laughs) And my next Omake Award is number three for me. I picked Best Nintendo Tweet. And I'm going to give this award to the announcement of Everybody Want to Switch, the tweet that announced Everybody Want to Switch. Josh, did you see this tweet? I don't know if I saw it. I I mean, no, I don't think I saw this one. I guess some background story on what is Everybody Want to Switch. This game was heavily rumored, I want to say last year, I believe Emily Rogers, who was a journalist, she mentioned it that Nintendo is working on a sequel to Want to Switch. And she did call it Everybody Want to Switch. And she mentioned that internally, they are so unsure about the quality of the game, they might just release it randomly. I think she said last year that it would release in May of 2022. So keep this in mind, May of 2022, we're hearing about this, quote unquote, pretty bad game. And then I think a lot of people forgot about it. And then Imran Khan, who is another journalist, he also wrote a piece about it maybe earlier this year. And so enough people know about the game, but nobody knows Is Nintendo going to release it? Is it really that bad? What's going to happen? And then all of a sudden, on June 2nd of 2023, all of a sudden, Nintendo tweets out, hashtag, everybody want to switch is coming to hashtag 
Nintendo Switch on June 30th, period. Oh. Pre-order now. And then it has the link to the pre-order. And then it just has the image of the game. If you've seen it, it's the horse. Yeah. Who, whose name is MC Horace. I got to give him some respect. His name is MC Horace. He's, <laughs> he's posing in the middle of the picture. And then everyone around him is really happy and waving their arms. So this is just a really random and insane tweet that just randomly dropped because this game was rumored for over a year. Everything people know about the game is that it's really, really bad. Nintendo just announced it out of nowhere, not in a Nintendo Direct. What really kills me about this tweet is that they don't even use an exclamation mark when they announce the game. If you look at Nintendo's tweets when they announce something big, they'll say, oh, Super Mario RPG is coming out November 17th, and it'll have an exclamation mark. This one is just, everybody wants to switch is coming to Nintendo Switch, period. Pre-order now. Link. It's just that. There's no flavor. There's no fanfare. It's just the picture and the link and the announcement. And this is just the funniest thing ever to me because it's so uncategoristically dull and bland compared to a lot of other Nintendo marketing. I will always remember this tweet. I think it's funny that you started off by saying it's MC Horse and you have to put some respect on him. If you, I really hope they use the expression, you better put some respect on that main <laughs> Otherwise, the, their pun game is just, it's useless. If they don't use that pun, they're just, they're done for. That's that's a great A pun. He will probably be on the YouTube thumbnail for this episode and also my, <laughs> my promo tweet or my promo picture for the podcast art. He will almost certainly be on there. So get ready to see MC Horace. So Josh, what is your next Omake award? All right. So we're going back to games that I that will be in the top five for me. This is the last Omake Award that includes that. It is a gaming sin I corrected. I finally, this year, beat Mist and Riven, the, the point-and-click adventure games from the 90s. Very, very happy that I beat them finally, with a little bit of help from some guides, so not as much as I would have expected. But yeah, once again, this is on my top... These are both on my top five. I will you'll find out where when we get to it mm. but i enjoyed my time with these games and i'm happy i can finally say that this part of my gaming backlog is complete i was looking to play mist earlier this year actually i just got it in my head oh i should play mist because i don't think i've ever just sat down and played it all the way through and i looked on switch and there's something called real mist which may or may not be missed but i have been thinking about mist in 2023 as well so i'm glad so, somebody else has Real Mist is basically, instead of the point-and-click nature of it, it's a fully 3D first-person puzzle game. Mm, You're exploring around the Mist Island in first-person. Now, the company that makes Mist, Cyan, they recently re-released Mist with beautiful new graphics and ray tracing, and you can play it in VR, too, if you have a VR headset for PC, I believe. I don't know if it's coming to home consoles or if it's already there. For I have no idea. But... There is a brand new version that you can buy for 30 bucks on PC. So yeah, it, it's 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 back, man. And apparently they are working on a remaster or a remake of Riven as well, So, hmm, which cool. is kind of cool. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to hear more about it. And my fourth Omake Award, I'm going to give it to Best Character That Doesn't Exist, Wapich. <laughs> Have you been keeping up with the Wapich news lately? The Waluigi version of Peach or a Wario version of Peach? Sort of. The creator of Waluigi from Camelot, because Waluigi first debuted in Mario Tennis for the Nintendo 64 Mm -hmm. as a double partner for Wario, basically. That's his origin. And they pitched that they wanted to make 
Peach and Daisy versions of, for example, Wario and Waluigi. And at the time, Miyamoto has a famous quote from Nintendo Power where he says, uh, or I, I guess Camelot is quoting Nintendo. They're saying, oh, N- Miyamoto said he didn't even want to think about them or he didn't even want to see them. So uh, <laughs> Miyamoto shut it down, shut down the idea of Wa Peach and Wa Daisy very quickly. But when Camelot made their GameCube Mario Tennis game, this time, instead of just saying an idea, they had a design for, she's called Waru Peach in Japanese, which you could translate to, I guess, Wa Peach, or I guess Wall Peach is maybe mm-hmm. more accurate. But the creator of Waluigi, Fumihide Aoki, he recently on Instagram, he just posted his concept art of the character that he wanted to add to Mario Tennis as what? the evil version of Peach. And not just the 2D art, but he also uploaded a 3D model as well. So, That's amazing. According to him, this is what he showed. I don't know, Miyamoto, but he showed Nintendo that they wanted to include this character and maybe Nintendo said no. But if you haven't seen her, she is kind of not exactly what you would expect in terms of an evil peach. She's definitely a bit more cute. She's got this blackish purple dress and she's got these X's on the bottom of her skirt and these Mm. kind of high boots, these high black boots. And she has this really strange headpiece with horns and kind of these orbs around the horns. But she is a blonde, blue-eyed girl, so she's not that different from from Peach. She's not hideous by any means. And it's just a really awesome thing that was randomly dropped out of nowhere. All Nintendo fandom is just going crazy about this character. She does look very out of the early 2000s. So I can Mm -hmm. see maybe Nintendo didn't want to put a character that seems so, I don't know, I guess locked to the times. Because if you think of Mario and Peach... They seem kind of out of time, I would say. You don't think of them yeah. as 80s designs. You think of them as, but they could be from any time period. She definitely looks like she came from 2001. So maybe Nintendo did not want to include her. But uh, I'm very excited to see what the Nintendo fandom does with this character in the many years to come. That's wild, man. I had, I'm looking, I looked up pictures of it now. I like the design a lot. I see what you're saying. How yeah, it's, kind it's of a cool design. In the past, but I really do enjoy the the look of it though i will say the 3d model doesn't look anywhere as good as the concept art yeah that tends to happen so josh what is your next omake award i believe it's the last one correct correct this is the last omake award and my final omake award is for the best game that i bought due to fomo but i never (laughs) played Mm. and oh man did fomo hit me hard on this one it is the iconic tears of the kingdom oh i Bought it shortly after launch. I want to say a day or two. Had a gift card. I used it. And I think I've logged maybe five hours into it. Mm-hmm. Maybe 10 at most. I'm bare- I am I got off of the opening area. And I yes. think I went to the castle. I forget already. I forget what I've done. It's been months. I do need to go and actually play it. But it's... Just it's hard to once again, it's hard to find time. So yeah, I, I'm bummed. I, I really enjoyed what I did play of Tears of the Kingdom. And but people were talking about it so much. I saw all the videos of it. I'm like, oh, I gotta buy this game. And then never really touched it. Proceeded to barely play it. So that I, FOMO got me, man. It got <laughs> me real hard. All all the social media stuff got me. I, I normally don't get swept up into the hype cycle of something, but Tears of the Kingdom got me. Yeah, I totally get it. But maybe after today, hopefully you have inspiration to pick the game back up. We'll see where it appears on my game of the year list. 
And my final Omake Award. It's a kind of a similar one to you. Best game I didn't finish. And I want to uh, give it to Octopath Traveler 2. Which, <laughs> bring you back to Octopath, all <laughs> yes. right. So yeah, it was funny when you mentioned Octopath Traveler earlier. I think a lot of people have this issue with Octopath Traveler, where they're enjoying the game. They realize it's very well made with a ton of creative ideas. But it is quite long. I put 30-ish hours into it, but I don't even think I'm halfway done with the game. I'm not really a stickler in terms of short or long games. If a game is long, but I'm really loving it, I'll beat it eventually. And I am really liking Octopath Traveler 2, but it's also very, I can kind of see what it's doing, and I know the rhythm. I know what I'm going to be doing from now until the end of the game. I had a fun 30 hours, and I really enjoyed my 30 hours. So do I need to push through to beat it just to beat it? Or what should I do? I've been kind of wrestling with that. I think it's a good game to pick up when there's maybe a gap in terms of new releases or you're not sure what to play. You can just go back and play Octopath Traveler 2 because it is a bit episodic in terms of how it's structured. I can't promise I'm going to beat it, but it is a good game. I'll probably talk about it on the podcast eventually. But and it is definitely the best game I did not finish. I need to get back into it. See, you were saying before, maybe I'll be convinced to get back into Tears of the Kingdom. Nah, man, I'm convinced now to get back into Octopath. I'm, I'm <laughs> already 30 some odd hours into the game as well. I oh, I have a party of four. I, I know all the, I know the missions I have to go on. I think the reason I took, I took a break is because I blew through the first section pretty quickly for each of the characters opening portions of their missions. And the part two thing, the recommended level is three or four levels higher than what I'm currently at. I'm still underleveled, so I ended up grinding a whole bunch, and that's when I kind of lost interest because grinding's fine, but it's it's harder for me to find enjoyment in grinding now as an adult when I have less yeah. time and I, I could be doing something more productive than just mashing the A button or mashing whatever button, the, the confirm button just to get some more levels here and there. But yeah, I I, I might go back to Octopath. You know? <laughs> All right. So those were the Omake Awards, the extra little bonus awards for you, the listener. But now it's time to get into Game of the Year. So our favorite games of 2023, regardless of whether or not they came out in 2023, it's just the games we loved this year. We're just going to count down five to one and go back and forth. So, Josh, what is number five in your game of the year list? Number five for me, and in all honesty, I've played a lot of different games this year, man. And mm. I feel like there's games that I play that were better than this, but this one I still go back to and think about. Put in perspective, other games that I played this year that did not make my top five, these will be my honorable mentions, I guess, really quick. Without, I promise, not going to go into a lot of detail with each of these. The Simulacra games, which are these found phone horror games, Spec Ops The Line, Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors, uh, yes. Medal, Medal of Honor, the first one, Epic mm. Mickey. I finally beat Crisis Core for the first time. Oh, cool. uh, The original one on the PSP, which that's actually for a Patreon poll topic for my show, which is coming out. I actually, the episode's actually already recorded. I just have to edit it. Anyway, but there, there's a bunch of others. Little Nightmares, tons of games. And I would actually put all these games in terms of quality Maybe not Simulacra, but all these other games that I mentioned <laughs> in terms of quality above my number five. But my number five is Sheep Raider, the Looney Tunes game. This game 
is it's a hidden gem on the PS1 because most times you think of licensed games and you just kind of overlook them. But for those who know Looney Tunes, there's something I think you would really enjoy about this. The premise of the game is you play as Ralph Wolf. If you remember in Looney Tunes, there was Ralph Wolf trying to steal sheep from Sam Sheepdog. And in the game, the premise of it is Ralph gets put onto a game show called Sheep, Dog, and Wolf, hence the name of the game in other territories, not in North America. And you participate in this game show, and each level is a different portion of the game show where you have to steal a sheep from Sam Sheepdog, and it gives you a bunch, a myriad of different options to do so. You get Acme gadgets and products, just like you would see in Looney Tunes. One of the first ones you get is if you can sneak up and steal a sheep, you have to bring it back, place it on a raft, and then you have a little hand fan that you would use to fan yourself, but you turn it on. It's battery operated and then face it away from you so it propels you on the raft across the water even though obviously it's looney tunes physics it doesn't make any sense in real life there's lots of stuff like that throughout the game you tie a rubber band around your waist and the other end around a tree and then you jump off a cliff and you rappel down on this rubber band to grab a sheep right next to sam sheepdog and then you can lift it up and then you have to find a way to get the sheep from where you stole it from sam sheepdog over to this circle which is the goal and there's some of it's a little finicky there's a a goal there's one where the goal is on a, a the sail of a pirate ship so you have to literally launch the sheep off a catapult through the hole in the center of it which is was a little obtuse i remember but it's a really fun puzzle platformer where you each level is different you have to figure out use the gadgets the game gives you to figure out how to get the sheep away from sam sheepdog there are so many different there's so much variety in how you play there's environmental puzzles as well i i mean most of the games environmental puzzles what i mean by environmental puzzles specifically is one one level for example has mine carts that you have to push into different positions so that way you can block a uh, line of sight from sam and stuff like that it's 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 interesting. There's lots of unique options to to play through. My biggest gripe is the the bosses are kind of weak. They're not good bosses for the game because they don't really test you on any of the skills that you learned from playing it. It's all more twitch reflexes, and that's not really something you get tested on in puzzle games all that often. It turns into a more platformer type of thing, and it's a little finicky. The game has weak platforming controls. It's definitely more of a puzzle game. So when you go from all puzzle to pretty much nothing but straight platformer, it's a little bit jarring. But overall, I think this game gets overlooked, and I think it's really worth checking out. Um, I don't know if it's going to click with everyone, but it still kind of resonated with me, even though the later levels are a little bit tougher. But I, I still think back on it fondly, and I think that's why I put it as my number five. Where it's no, it's I, I still think it's not as good as some of the other games that I played this year that didn't make it on my list. But this one just stuck with me for some reason, and I don't know why. So yeah, Sheep Raider, that's my number five. Yeah, I think I've heard of the name, but I'm pretty unfamiliar with the game in general. Did you play it as a kid, or how did you discover it in 2023? It is a bit nostalgic. I had it as a kid and never got very far. And then I decided to earlier this year to sit down in earnest and play through Sheep Raider. I played through it on on my Twitch streams, twitch.tv slash stillloadingpod. Um, I played through it on my Twitch streams a bit by bit, and it was really fun. So yeah, it was 
I, I've been using Twitch as an excuse to play through games that I've been meaning to play through for quite some time. Hmm. And this was one of them. Actually, right now, I'm playing through the original Metroid on, on my Twitch stream oh, using wow. save states. I'm not going full OG and because mm. that, that game's brutal. But yeah, so <laughs> yeah. this is this game was one of those where I played for the first time on Twitch. So that way I could push myself through it for, for the audience type of thing. It, I enjoyed it, though. It has its flaws, but overall, it's still pretty fun. This is why I invited you on the podcast, because I guarantee no other Game of the Year list has Sheep Raider anywhere on the list. <laughs> so I'm glad we are really putting out some really original, one-of-a-kind list here. I'll share my number five game. Now, preface this, I do own a PS5. Even though this is a Nintendo podcast, I do own a PS5. I play a lot of non-Nintendo games. I featured many non-Nintendo games on the podcast. However... I have a lot of Nintendo games in my top five because it was a really excellent year for Nintendo as a publisher. They put out a ton of great games, even though we are in year seven of the Switch's life. And this year was filled with a mix of a lot of original games, a lot of masterpieces, also a lot of Mm -hmm. remakes, a lot of callbacks to older franchises. And my number five game of the year, I'm going to give it to Kirby's Return to Dreamland Deluxe, which is... It came out in 2023, but it is a remake of the 2011 Wii game. And it was actually ironically just called Kirby Wii. So (laughs) in Japan, it's called Kirby Wii Deluxe, which is a very strange uh, name. But (laughs) it's from HAL, the makers of Kirby, and also Vanpool, which also has done a lot of co-development of past Kirby titles, including The Forgotten Land, which we talked about last year. And it is an excellent 2D platformer. And I think the perfect follow-up to Forgotten Land that we both talked about last year. We both had it on our Game of the Year list last year. And I think that was kind of the gateway to Kirby for many, many people because it was its sort of big entry into 3D. Mm -hmm. And so you might think, well, Kirby's 3D now. Why should we go back to 2D? I think this game is really emblematic of what is great about 2D Kirby games. And 2D Kirby games, they are not Twitch platformers. They're not like Mario. They're not like Donkey Kong. I would say they are mostly closer to character action games. Not quite Bayonetta, but you're going through the level and you're not thinking about timing your jumps Mm, as much as you are thinking about dealing with enemies and using the enemy powers in different ways. And a lot of them are very puzzle-focused. There's many secrets hidden in the level. There's things to collect. And this game also has, even though it's a remake, it has a lot of new content. There are new power-ups for Kirby, including a mech power-up. So he gets lasers and Kirby's moveset in general, especially for this game, it's so diverse. It is very similar to Smash Brothers where, okay, B down does something, B up does something. If you're in the air and press B, that does something different. He has so many different attacks for all his power-ups. And the new ones, the sand one and the mech ones are really awesome. And we were kind of jumping ahead a bit to Super Mario Bros. Wonder. But Wonder, the big gimmick of that game is the quote-unquote Wonder Flower, where you touch it and then the stage changes into something totally different, something you wouldn't expect. But Kirby also has this mechanic in this game. And Kirby got to it first, before Mario. For example, there are these super power-ups where you'll get like a huge sword, and then you can break through the level with the sword. Or you turn into a big dragon if you get a fire power-up, and you're just busting through things in the level. And then after that kind of super power-up segment is done, then you are warped to a different part of the stage that is separate, And these challenges are a bit different from what you would find in a traditional Kirby stage. They're a bit tougher, 
and they're definitely more fast-paced. And at the end, you fight a boss. They're a very separated part of the level. So it's not quite wonder where everything flows a bit together. But the idea of, Mm -hmm. okay, the level suddenly changes to something you wouldn't expect is in this game. And Kirby got to it first. So I, I wanted to shout out that Kirby technically came up with the wonder mechanic before Mario ever did. The fact that Nintendo is still doing 2D games and kind of reinventing them. I know for a while, I I mean, I feel you and I are old enough to remember in the late 90s and early 2000s, having a 2D game was considered almost taboo. Why would you do a 2D game when you could have a 3D game? Even, Even though I know this Kirby game is a remake of an older one, is that they aren't afraid to come back to 2D design. I think the indie scene has really shown that too, where 2D games can be really innovative. And I feel Nintendo is, okay, well, what if we come up with a goofy idea for 2D and then maybe that'll influence something we do later in 3D. I feel it's such a smart way to do things where you could even see that even with the new Mario Brothers, the new Super Mario Brothers. You would see new Super Mario Brothers and then 3D World and 3D Land are kind of what if you did new Super Mario Brothers, but on an isometric perspective they'll try some new ideas with some 2d games and then they'll try to re reimagine them in a 3d perspective so I, i'm happy that they haven't given up on the on 2d games it makes me really happy to see yeah and once forgotten land came out and that was such a big hit it's the best-selling kirby game ever a lot of people assumed okay hal is done with 2d kirby but not quite there are many many kirby games that they could remake and they could make a new 2d kirby game i wouldn't mind that at all And I think this is an excellent game to remake because it is different from Forgotten Land in what it focuses on. For example, this game has a heavier focus on multiplayer. You can play as King Dedede, you can play as Meta Knight. Forgotten Land did have some multiplayer, but it's much more deep here. And this game also has easily the best minigame collection. Kirby games, of course, are very iconic for their minigames that you can play outside Mm -hmm. of the story. And this one has... forgot the name, but it's Magalore's Theme Park, where it's a separate hub you go to, and you can play all these different mini-games. And a lot of these mini-games are from past games. It's really the all-star collection of all the great Kirby mini-games from its history. So you've got the great mini-games from Kirby Superstar, the Planet Punch. You've got Samurai Mm. Kirby, one of the best mini-games ever. Uh, You've got Checkerboard Chase from Kirby 64, again, one of the best mini-games ever. You have some ones from Kirby Wii. You have some new ones in there as well. But I'm a huge fan of Checkerboard Chase from 64. And the fact that they remade it in HD, they remixed the song. It's just, it's crazy that they ever did that. It's like they asked me, what is the one thing you want from Kirby? I would say, Hmm. make an HD version of this mini game from Kirby 64, which you would think nobody would ever do, but they did it. Yeah. And there's a really fun mode called Samurai Kirby 100, which is sort of a battle royale. And if you've never played Samurai Kirby, you're a samurai and you're dueling another Kirby character who is also a samurai. And okay. you're, you're, it's side by side, so it's 2D plane. And it's sunset and it's a classic samurai duel. Whoever puts their blade out first wins, but you have to wait for the exclamation mark to appear in the middle. And then you press A and whoever is fastest, they win. So it's basically saying who can press A the fastest. And you might think, okay, that's the simplest game in the history of video gaming. But it's just so fun, just the atmosphere and the sound effects and just the waiting for the pop-up and the immediacy of them slashing at each other is so satisfying. And the Samurai Kirby 100, it's online and you have 100 other people at the same time. And you might be thinking, how could 100 people duel each other? 
Well, it's more of a race where it's really funny because it shows 100 Samurai Kirby's in a row. And then it will show the exclamation mark. And when you press A, it shows Kirby slashing through how many other people you beat. So for example, you will slash through 90 Kirby's and then your position is 10 or something. For the leaderboard, you only have one chance per day. So if you want to be at the top of the leaderboard, you get one chance per day. Uh, but you can still practice as many times as you want. This is just a really fun idea that's just hidden in this Kirby game. So yeah, Kirby's Return to the Dreamland Deluxe. It came out in February. Again, uh, that's a long time ago. I think a lot of people kind of forgot about it, or maybe they weren't really interested because they thought, okay, Kirby has graduated to 3D, so we don't need to go back to 2D. But I would say if you enjoyed Forgotten Land and you're curious about, okay, what's the next Kirby game I should get? I think this one is a really excellent entry point into 2D Kirby games. So Josh, number four, what is your fourth favorite game of 2023? My number four is one that I've mentioned before, and it is Mist mm. by Cyan. came out in 93, if I remember correctly. Mist, for those who don't know, spelled M-Y-S-T. Mist is a point-and-click puzzle adventure game that was groundbreaking at the time for its visuals. It is a wonderful point-and-click adventure game where I think the reason it, it I, I played this as a kid, never got very far, and it captured my imagination. And it's not because, I don't know, point-and-click adventure games, I, I'm not always great at. They don't always resonate with me. But what I think captured my imagination about Mist was its atmosphere. The game pulls off this perfect trick of being so unsettling and creepy because of the sounds and the emptiness and the eeriness of the world you're exploring but you're in no danger you literally cannot die and miss mm. it's just the only stop the only thing that halts your forward momentum is the puzzles and that's how a puzzle game is meant to be and you would think that a game that kind of oozes so much creepiness in its worlds would have some type of enemy there for you, but no, it's just, it just, it, it's unsettling. The game, basically the premise of the, of the game is you play as a character that falls into the world of mist. You basically discover this book and it's called a linking book. And you, when you open it up, you see this Island, you, you read about this description of this Island and you see a picture of it and the picture moves in the book. So you place your hand on it and you fall into the world of mist and you kind of get engulfed in this really deep storytelling that is told through environmental storytelling. I was listening to, I want to say, watch out for fireballs, that podcast, as well as Nostalgia Ar Arcanum, which is a really awesome, really fun podcast. I've guested on once or twice. They both did an episode on mist and the thing they talk about is this game, in terms of the way it tells its story, is kind of a predecessor. I don't know if it's a direct inspiration, but you can see you can see some influence at the very least on how the Soulsborne games tell their stories, where hmm. a lot of it's done through flavor text and through exploration and through reading items. This, as opposed to finding the world and lore through item descriptions, you read a, a handful of it, books in-game, and then as you explore around the worlds you can see what the books describe and you get context for it. When you land on the Island of Mist, there is 
other linking books that you can find that take you to other ages, as they call it in the game. And ages are just basically just another world. It's think of it as another level. If you find the books in the library that aren't there, there's a there's a burned bookshelf in the library on the island of mist that you're exploring to start off. It's kind of like the hub island. You can read about this age called the Channelwood Age, and it's this whole world is just basically flooded with water. And so there's treetop bridges and elevators that go up to the treetops and houses up in the treetops, and you have to find your way how to get up there. That's the puzzle element. But when you do get up there, you can see remnants of the civilization that used to be there. And you you get hints of what happened in the book, but then you can start piecing things together. And without going into too much more, because I, I know we have a bunch of more games to talk about, the premise of the story at this point is that once you, the player character, falls into the world of mist, you are tasked with as you're you explore around the mist island and you find these two books in the library there's a red book and a blue book and there is somebody in the book talking to you and it, it sounds almost radio static and things are cutting in and out so you can't quite understand it and basically they just say bring bring me the blue pages the blue book is telling you to bring him the blue pages the guy in the red book's telling you to bring him the red pages or as he just or as he reads it bring me red pages as <laughs> as the actor does in the in the game and as you put the books back together by finding their respective pages the picture on the video becomes more clear and they can talk to you more effectively and at the end of the game you have to determine who's telling the truth, who's lying, and who is the actual good guy and bad guy. And it might Mm. not be what you expect. And the way you can tell who is good isn't directly by their messages. You have to look at the world around them, the world that they visualize to get an idea of who these people are that were trapped in the books. If they're such good people, why were they trapped in the books in the first place type of thing? So you you have to kind of start picking and choosing. It's really good. The storytelling is great. I will say some of the puzzles are a little obtuse. There's a couple sound puzzles that I think are absolutely awful. Um, (laughs) And I think they're smart for how they wanted it to work, but there's still, I I have some issues with it, but yes, that that's my number four was missed. I was very pleasantly surprised. And while some of the puzzles I don't think hold up and I think some of the game can be a little obtuse, I think the world building and the story is really, really good. I I think they really nailed it, even with some of the bad 90s full motion video acting. Which version did you play? Because, yeah, Myst is maybe one of the most ported games ever. I played a port on Steam. There's the Myst HD version. There's the Myst Masterpiece version. That's what I played. Hmm. I played the Myst Masterpiece version. But there are so many different versions of Myst that you can get. But, yeah, it's I really enjoyed my playthrough of it. I was pleasantly surprised. The game still captures my imagination, even as an adult. I love the world building in it, so... If you have not played Mist and you're in the mood for a puzzle game, it's worth at least trying because the the story is actually really interesting and the the background and the history and the world building is great. It's just the puzzles are a little obtuse. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely an iconic game. So many puzzle games were inspired by Mist and it has a really distinct art style even today. I don't want to say it's steampunk. It's kind of a mix of fantasy and classical architecture and also sci-fi a little bit. That's a mix of everything. So it really stands out even today. 
the aesthetic of the world, I think they really nailed. While the 3D graphics don't look great by comparison, and it's all just, it's still images. It's there's not it's not a fully living 3D world. It's just 3D renders. But mm. considering that it's just 3D renders that you're clicking through from screen to screen, it still feels so fully realized. Though there are a couple moments that you have to go pixel hunting. So I, I would suggest right. if you do end up playing this game, don't be afraid to use a guide. I think this game was designed around the time when you think about people had a lot more free time on their hands <laughs> and a lot less choice of entertainment. So don't don't necessarily feel bad for having to look up some stuff, but it, it's a great game. Definitely. And my number four game of the year. Again, it's a remake, actually. I do have new games that are not remakes on this list, <laughs> but this one kind of slid in at the last minute. It's a remake, but it's pretty much all new to me. And that's Super Mario RPG 2023 Ooh. remake from Arte Piazza. I wasn't sure if it's going to make my top five, so I did have to bump out. I'll give a shout out to this game real fast. Never Awake used to be my number five game, which is a really cool indie 2D twin stick shooter. I'm sorry, Never Awake. You got bumped out out of the top five because Super Mario RPG, it really kind of blew me away when I played it. And I rolled credits not too long ago, so I don't want it to be recency bias, but I am pretty confident in its position in my Game of the Year list. It's yeah a remake of the 1996 game from Square Enix. So they made this, and then one year later, they put out Final Fantasy VII. So it is kind of an interesting contrast to see these two very different RPGs that came out very, very close to each other and were very historically important. And I did play a little bit of Super Mario RPG through an emulator years and years ago. Have you ever played Super mm. Mario RPG, the original SNES version? I have. I actually own a complete in-box copy in my oh. collection of it, and I love it. Uh, a booster for Smash, baby. I want to see <laughs> Booster everywhere. He is one of my favorite characters just because he's just so comically insane. He mm. is just a man with no eyelids and a giant <laughs> beard and a red nose. And it's just, he's wonderful. He's so goofy. He's so silly. I don't remember much about his character other than his silliness. I do know, doesn't he kidnap Princess Peach and try to get her to marry him or something like that? Yes. Um, he's got some problematic stuff going on with him, <laughs> you know, kidnapping people. But uh, he's just so silly and over the top. Or even when you rescue Peach, I remember he's it's it's almost played off as co uh, comedy for him. I, I love I love the character of Booster. Sorry, I'm not going to keep singing the praises of Booster. But every time people <laughs> mention Super Mario RPG, I just think of that derp. He just he just constantly like, the way his mouth, and especially in the original one, the way in the, his mouth is animated, it just looks he's always it's always open just ready to yell at any moment. Booster is ridiculous, and I love him. Yeah, so I have no real nostalgia for the game. I've barely played it through an emulator years ago, so it's mostly all new to me. Of course, I know a lot about it just through osmosis. I've seen some of the characters before, but otherwise, it's pretty much a completely new game, and it really captures what makes JRPGs great. It has everything I want in a JRPG. It has a very fun battle system, now there are so many Mario RPGs, so we kind of know what to expect. But as a first attempt at a Mario RPG game, they really nail what makes Mario great. And they also really nail the interesting elements of a JRPG, and let's combine them together. So it has a really great battle system that relies on timing. So it's not just selecting things from a menu. You need to time your button presses if you want to uh, do better attacks. And this remake it adds in AoE attacks if you get perfect timing. 
So that's a little mm. extra bonus, which does make the game easier. A lot of people criticize the game for being too easy, but I think the mechanics are so fun that I don't care if it's easy. It also has really great towns. Every town you go to, it has its own story, its own atmosphere. There's things to find, secrets to discover. Every town is really wonderful. There's so many side quests and mini games that are hidden in the world. And you mentioned Booster earlier. Booster's Tower, that dungeon, is really excellent. I've never seen anything like Mm -hmm. it in a game. It's just a weird wooden tower, and it's kind of decorated with these checkerboard patterns. I've never seen this design in any other place in a game, especially a JRPG. It really stuck Mm -hmm. with me. And when you enter it, you see the pictures of his family. It's just (laughs) an immediate, what is going on when when you go into this place? It's so memorable. And then later on, one of the puzzles is that you have to put his ancestors in order. So you have to kind of remember what it looked like in the first floor. And the game is filled with all these weird puzzles and mini games that are really just one-offs. There's a minecart race, and this mm-hmm. is only used for this one section. If you think about people sitting down and making this, they have to program the mechanics for this almost Mario Kart-esque mini game. It never comes up again ever in the game. And there's no real reason to even put it in the game, but they just thought it was fun. Super Mario RPG is filled with so many just one-off great ideas. Again, going back to Booster's Tower, which honestly is probably my favorite dungeon in the game. There's one section where you're Mario and you're hiding behind these curtains and Booster and his army or the Sniffits, they're searching for the Mario toy. And so they think it's behind the curtains. So you have to move behind the curtains right before the Sniffits open it up. So you're trying to hide and not get revealed. And it's just like this really weird Metal Gear Solid-esque section of you trying to dodge the Sniffits opening up the curtains. And this is just so absurd to put into a game, especially Mm -hmm. a JRPG. Because, again, they have to think about, okay, we have to program the mechanics of recognizing if the character can see Mario or not. And then this opening close mechanic, it just seems so unnecessary. I think they could have really phoned it in. Whereas, okay, you're Mario, and then you press the fireball attack, and then you attack the Goomba, and that's it. They could have made it really even more simple than it is. But they really went the extra mile in making it so creative. It's filled with so many original ideas that even in other Mario RPGs I haven't seen before. And it just takes everything that's wonderful about JRPGs, exploration, the battle system, mini games, mm-hmm. side quest, uh, memorable characters, fun towns to explore, and it really condenses them into a very breezy 10 or 15 hours to complete the game. A soundtrack that slaps. Oh, yeah. The soundtrack, I would probably say the best of the year. There's a new... It's so good. There's a new orchestrated version made by Yoko Shimomura, who did the original one. Mm -hmm. But you can switch freely between the two in the game. You can do the old school one or the orchestrated one. Since I have no nostalgia for the, the original one, I really do love the orchestrated versions. They just sound so grand and so amazing. It really feels like you're on an epic adventure. Some of my favorite music this year, period. And yeah, it's just a really fun RPG. We talked about Octopath Traveler, how long it is. And that's also a good game. But there is something to be said about a 15-hour experience that completely understands what is fun about a JRPG. And you can experience all that in a very truncated time span without sacrificing what makes the genre really fun so super mario rpg is my number four game of the year i love that game man i really do i haven't played it in a while and i did want to get the remake but couldn't justify spending the money but i really enjoyed my time with super mario rpg 
So Josh, what is your number three game of the year? My number three, it is in the same vein as Mist. Quite literally, it is the sequel to Mist. It is Riven. And mm. actually, the, the title of the game is Riven, the sequel to Mist. I beat these games somewhat recently back to back, and Riven improves on every single thing that Mist did. I would say Ooh. there are some puzzles that I don't enjoy, but by and large, Riven improved on pretty much everything. The visuals of it are just stunning even to this day i still think the visuals of it look great there are some spots that are a little rougher on the edges but they do a lot more with animation there's a lot more 3d animated segments that kind of get superimposed on top of it the storytelling is so interesting where the premise of this one is it picks up exactly where the first mist left off what riven excels in is exactly what mist excelled in it's with world building you explore around the island you read journals and then you can see what the world of riven is actually and you get a little bit more insight into how these linking books work and who these people are that seems to be linking to these worlds and they practice this thing just called the art it's a proper noun it's capitalized and it kind of comes across as these authors almost are writing worlds into existence but they don't have full control over the worlds they write into the existence it's super mm. interesting mist and riven are worth checking out just for the lore alone cyan the developer of them really did a fantastic job at creating a unique world and narrative and it makes you want to explore the world more and learn about it and learn about what they do it's awesome it's worth checking out it's so good hmm. i think a lot of people have played mist or they've touched it but i think riven has definitely flown under the radar what do you think about the name should they have just called it mist 2 because the name is riven colon the sequel to mist for marketing purposes they should have called it mist 2 but i think the name is cooler i think riven mm. is such a cool name and Riven, once again, it's a world of five different islands. It's got one of the one of the cool things that it captured in my imagination as a kid is that there's this transit tram system that tra that helps you travel from island to island. And the original game, the hmm. tram system was these really cool 3D animated. I can't even describe it. It looks almost like a rocket almost or a helicopter, I guess, cockpit that's attached to wires and you go through it. It just it's the imagination in the in the world building is so unique and interesting. It's accentuated as much in, in mist it's really cool yeah definitely sounds basically they took mist and made it bigger and better so moving on to my number three this is actually a new game so not a remake so don't worry listeners it's not just five remakes in a row <laughs> but it is Aww. yet another mario game super mario brothers wonder the new 2d platformer from epd10 the 2d mario team and there it it's is. The next evolution in 2D Mario games, but it doesn't sacrifice what made the new series great. I'm a big fan of the new Super Mario Brothers franchise, and I think a lot of people are cold on that franchise because they came up with an art style which was really fresh and original in 2006 because it was a really interesting idea to take all these Mario conventions and kind of make them a more uniform 3D art style, but it's still going to be a 2D game. And they kept that art style for pretty much a decade and i think a lot of people got kind of tired of it but now with wonder they've moved on to a different art style it's mostly focused on softer colors instead of the really bright saturated colors of the new super mario series and there's a ton of new enemies it just feels like a completely new world which i guess it technically is you're going to the flower kingdom 
And I always think it's funny that in a Mario game, if it's in the Mushroom Kingdom, they try to make it as quote unquote accurate to the Mushroom Kingdom as possible. But if Mario goes to a new world in the 3D World series or an Odyssey, they just really go off the wall with the designs. They throw out a ton of new enemies. They throw out a ton of new areas to explore in terms of the art style and how they look. They really just go crazy with it. So I always appreciate it when Mario leaves the Mushroom Kingdom. I never even noticed how different the non-Mushroom Kingdom worlds look. You're you're right, though. And I I like it when they do that, because as much as I love Mario, the variety is really what makes Mario shine. And so anytime you can go someplace new, it allows them to do so many new ideas. And I love that. Yeah. And one thing that I really like about Wonder in general is that they didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. They kept a lot of the conventions from the new series. They took everything that worked there, and it's here in Wonder. For example, something that a lot of people haven't really touched on is that the physics system of, let's say, New Super Mario Brothers U and Wonder are almost the exact same. There are some small changes. I think Mario's turn speed is different in Wonder. And also he stops faster in Wonder than he does in U. So he doesn't slide as long mm. when you let go of the button, for example. But the jump height is the same. The reaction time of when you press A and when he launches is the same. So much of it is pretty similar to you, more than you would think. And I don't think this is a bad thing. I don't think they needed to make a completely new physics system for new Super Mario Brothers Wonder. Because why would you? What's the point if the one we have now is pretty excellent? Instead of starting from zero and making a new physics system, let's instead focus on different elements of the game. The biggest one being the Wonder Flower, which I did talk about a little bit earlier in the uh, Kirby section. It is different from Kirby in that instead of being warped to a new area, the level changes around you or you change and then you have to navigate the level in a completely new different form. For example, you'll often turn into enemies. You'll turn into like a big slime and the slime you can crawl on the ceiling and you can go through these very narrow passages. So it's completely different from what you've been doing. But the game is really smart in how what the wonder mechanic is is not too dissimilar from the level. It's hard to predict what the wonder mechanic is going to be, but once it happens, especially once you replay the level, you understand, oh, okay, I see what they were building up to for the wonder flower. I see that, okay, the twist Mm -hmm. on the gameplay, it makes sense. They were kind of preparing me for it before that change happens. So it's really smart how they integrate it into the game because you do have the risk of, oh, the, the game is totally different now and I don't know what to do. But Nintendo is very smart. They know what they're doing. Every single stage has a wonder flower mechanic and you never really know what's going to happen. And even though they do reuse some of the ideas, there's multiple ones where you turn into a Goomba, for example, there's multiple Mm -hmm. ones where, oh, you are invisible or you walk on the wall. Even though they might use the same idea, they use it in really creative ways. I felt like the game was really short. And when I checked Mm -hmm. my playtime, it was about 20 hours. So about the same as if you do 100% for New You or 3D World, for example. But the game was just so fun and so fast and breezy, it felt shorter than what it actually is. So the game is not lacking for content, but time flies when you're having fun. So I felt like, oh, this game just blew by. And last bit of thing I want to mention is the awesome new implementation of the multiplayer, especially the online multiplayer. You can see other people play at the same time, but you really can't interact with them. You can't bump into them like you could in the new series. But instead, it focuses more on a co-op experience, almost like a Hideo Kojima-esque strand game, 
where you can place things in the level and that can help other players. For example, you place the standee, which is a big sign. Mm-hmm. And if you die, you turn into a ghost. And if you touch that person's sign, you'll be revived. But not only okay. that, players also put them in maybe spots where there are secrets. For example, you're, maybe you're jumping through the level and you see a standee really high up. And it looks like it's just hovering in the air. But you can't put the standees in the air. You have to put it on a surface. So that tells you, oh, there's a secret block somewhere that I need to find. So it's a really fun kind of co-op helpful experience, which you really haven't seen in a Mario game before. Kind of reminds me of bringing back the playground days where you would trade secrets with friends on Mm. the playground. Oh, did you know about this secret spot right there? It's kind of a way to do that in a modern age. Yeah, exactly. It's really smart how they do it because the new multiplayer and also the 3D world multiplayer, there is a competitive aspect of it where you're just bumping into people and you're messing around. But the online multiplayer, it's really smart how they did it because there was online multiplayer in Super Mario Maker 2 where you could have four people playing through the level. And when it worked, it was amazing. But when it didn't work, which was about half the time, the lag was just Mm -hmm. unplayable. They thought of a really creative way in how they could implement online multiplayer without making it go two frames per second. It doesn't slow down at all because people are playing in their own levels. So yeah. it doesn't affect your level at all. And it's just really fun to just play Mario with other people at the same time, which you really wouldn't think you think of Mario as this solo experience. But last thing I wanted to mention is that it does have a lot of characters that you can play as. You can play as Daisy for the first time ever. And you can even play as Yoshi Yoshi and Nabbit are the quote-unquote easy mode characters where they are invincible, Mm. so they can't take damage. Uh, But they also can't use power-ups, for example. So they can't turn into Elephant Yoshi, sadly. But it's kind of fun to play as Yoshi because he still has all his Yoshi moves. He does the flutter jump, yet he can eat enemies. So it's weird to just play as Yoshi in a Mario game. It's just, oh, the streams are crossing. (laughs) So Super Mario Bros. Wonder, my third favorite game of the year and another excellent entry in the 2D Mario canon. I kind of like you can play easy mode. It's an interesting way to bring Mm. accessibility to the game while also rewards player with higher skills by giving them different and unique mechanics. And it gives accessibility to the lesser skilled players where they can still enjoy the fun, kinetic Mario platforming, but still giving something to the experienced players as uh, something for them. Yeah, there's definitely a lot for experienced Mario gamers. One thing I forgot to mention is the badge system where you can equip a new skill to your character. So there's only one skill at a time. But all the skills are just fun to use. One is a grappling hook. So you can basically play a Mario level with a grappling hook, which is not something that's ever been done before. Another one is a hat parachute. You can basically just summon a parachute. There's one called Jet Run, where you're constantly running. So you can't slow down. So it's an auto run. But you can run on the air a little bit, And then you can kind of jump in midair. There's also other ones where you can do a higher spin jump. There's a one that I really liked was a crouch jump where you crouch down. And then when you release the crouch, you jump up really, really high. So if you are a hardcore Mario fan and you're like, okay, I'm going to go through this level with this badge, which maybe the level is not really suited for that badge, but I just want the extra challenge. All the badges have these kind of obstacle course levels which are really fun because there's no enemies in them. You're just using Mm -hmm. the badge in really creative ways. But there's some challenge ones as well, like an invisible badge where you can't see Mario. 
Uh, you can still see the dust kick up when you're running, but otherwise you can't mm -hmm. see Mario at all. So that's the extra, extra hard mode challenge uh, for those who want it. But if you don't want that challenge, you can just pick Yoshi or Nabbit, and then you won't take damage. And it's really fun because going back to the online multiplayer, in the special world, these super, super hard levels, you can tell there are some people who are picking Yoshi and Nabbit, and they're just there to help other people who are dying. So because you can't take damage. So in some levels that are really enemy heavy, basically Nabbit is just kind of standing around and at these really tough spots in the level. And when other players are dying, you can just go to Nabbit and he'll revive you. So there are people who are, they're just oh, going into, cool. the, into the level just to help other people. And that's something I've done as well. I pick a light blue Yoshi and I'll go to some of the levels where I know that are really, really tough. And I'll just go to the hard part and just help revive people and kind of walk through the level with people who are online. And it's really fun when you get to the flagpole together and you're popping off the emojis. It's just a really fun, heartwarming experience that I never thought I would have in a Mario game. So that's one reason why Super Mario Bros. Wonder is my third favorite game of the year. I, I mean, with all that, I can't imagine what you're going to say about your number two and one. <laughs> I, I've, though I have a suspicion, I know what your number one is. I think mm. I have a suspicion. But Josh, I want to hear what is your number two game of the year? All right. So finally getting out of the 90s in my list here. My number two is a game that is still a decade old, though. It's Bioshock Infinite. Ooh, um, interesting. Yeah. So Bioshock Infinite is pretty polarizing now. I mean, it's very different from the original Bioshock. The original Bioshock is a very atmospheric, moody horror. The atmosphere of the game puts you much more on edge because you're trapped inside this underwater city with a bunch of crazy people who are basically genetically spliced themselves too far and they're they're no longer really human. They don't have much left of what makes them human. Versus Bioshock Infinite, I did a full episode earlier this year on it, uh, though I did beat the game back when it came out as well. I like Bioshock Infinite because the gameplay is much more action-oriented. It's uh, as opposed to the original, which is still has plenty of action, but they, they do a little bit more with stealth. They do a little bit more with that horror aspect versus this is just nothing but just chaos. They really lean into the chaos because you can't really make a horror game in this flying city because Bioshock Infinite takes place in the flying city of Columbia where you play as a character named Booker DeWitt and your whole mission is to, and I quote, bring them the girl and wipe away the dead. You are tasked with rescuing this woman named Elizabeth who's being held captive in the flying city of Columbia. It takes place in 1912, I want to say. It's like the early 1900s. Filled with a lot of social and political commentary that I, I will spare your listeners right now. There's a lot to break down. There's so much to discuss in it. But the reason I put it on here is because I've now played this game three times. Once when it came out, once another time because I wanted to play through all the DLC and then I never did. And then finally, I, I played it for my episode on it. I played through all of Bioshock Infinite again and then also played through all the DLC, which I had not done. And really enjoyed my time with it. It's still fun. I, I think it gets a bad rap because it does get a little pretentious with its messages, but it also, I, I don't know. I think the gameplay is just so solid. If you're, if you're looking for uh, exactly what the original Bioshock was, you're not going to get it. You can't really make a horror game 
when you have this giant open world city. You can't do it in the same way, I should say. So I think smartly the game designers are like, well, we can't make this claustrophobic. You're literally in a flying city. You're out in the open air. So even though technically, yes, if you jump off the edge, you die. So it's you might as well be claustrophobic. You're stuck in this place, but you don't feel that way because you're literally out in the open air. And they even have these things called uh, the sky rails where you can jump on them with your sky hook. And it it's kind of acts a little crazy. It's a, it's a monorail train system type of thing from uh, building to building that just goes through the air. And you have fights on it. You'll fight enemies on it. You have to deal with some enemies, the, the handymen who, if they jump up onto the rails with you, they may not be able to travel. They, they won't be able to catch you. They're too slow, but they can electrocute them. So you have to jump off them at the at the right time before they electrocute it and knock you off. And if you know if they do that the, at the wrong spot, you can fall to your death type of thing. It's just, it's a fun game, man. I, I think... What I enjoy about it is that it is just nonstop action. And I think the original Bioshock does a lot more for storytelling in games. Bioshock Infinite is just flat out fun. It just it is just chaotic shooter action. And I think that now it's become much more polarized. It got rave reviews at the time and then shortly after those rave reviews, it was easy for some people to dunk on. But I still like it. I still like this game. And you have similar gameplay mechanics to the original where you have these powers in, in Bioshock Infinite, it's called Vigors. In in the original Bioshock, it's called Plasmids. But they do different things. The Plasmids in the original Bioshock are much more stealth-based. You can hack enemy turrets and other stuff, and you can go invisible, you can sneak around enemies, you can throw bees at them, if I remember correctly, though it's been a minute. In this one, it's a lot more action-based. You start off with fireballs, and you have this one called Bucking Bronco. We'll basically shoot a shockwave at an enemy and launch them up into space. And the final showdown, I won't without spoiling anything, it is a little chaotic. There's not really a boss. You're on an airship and there's just enemies coming anywhere. It's a gauntlet that you have to fight through. And I really enjoy it. I, I know I said that a bunch of times, but people always go for the original Bioshock. And as much as I respect it and agree, it's one of the best games of all time. And arguably, not arguably, it is more important than Infinite. But Infinite is just fun, man. It still sticks with me all these years later. And even though I did play it for this game or for this year, for an episode, I still think it just it still has resonated with me, even though I haven't touched it now for seven months. So, yeah, Bioshock Infinite, that's my number two. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of controversy when it was released, because as you said, it did get really rave reviews, but it was so different from the original game, which is kind of a closer to a survival horror Bioshock Infinite really praised at launch people were saying game of the year as time passed people were saying that game got away from what made bioshock interesting but now it is kind of looped around where there's been enough time passed and people kind of appreciate the game for what it was trying to do as opposed to just comparing it to the original game so my number two game is pikmin 4 again actually from epd 10 the same team as Super Mario Brothers Wonder, but the staff is different. Mm-hmm. But it is that same team. So they were really killing it this year. And also A-Ting. They worked on Pikmin 3 Deluxe, and they're also famous for Kuru Kuru Kururin, which I did talk about on the podcast earlier yep. this year. And if you told me last year that you were going to put a Pikmin game over a new 2D Mario game, I would think you were crazy. But this game is just that good. No slight against Mario Wonder. I didn't have anything bad to say about Mario Wonder, but I was just blown away by Pikmin 4. 
you are kind of the one who kind of got me back into Pikmin. Because last year during our Game of the Year episode, you put Pikmin, the first game, on your Game of the Year list. Was it my number one? I think it was number two. So listeners, yes, after this episode, if you didn't listen to that one, you can go back and listen to our 2022 Game of the Year, where we do talk about Pikmin 1. And you asked Mm. me, oh, you must be big into Pikmin, right? And I said, not really, because I played the first game on the GameCube, and I didn't really get into it, because I was just freaked out by the time mechanic. But I had Pikmin 3 deluxe on my switch i just never touched it i got it half off and just bought it and then never touched it but then after you talked about pikmin one uh, and then my wife wanted to play a game i thought well let's just start up pikmin three and i got really into pikmin three and i really loved that game and i really got hyped for pikmin four as well nintendo released pikmin one and two on the switch before pikmin four came out so i played through one and played a little bit of two Ironically, I played through all the Pikmin games this year, something I would not have imagined if you asked me a year ago. uh, Are you going to to play through all the Pikmin games? I would say, no, I'm not really into Pikmin. But now I am deep, deep into Pikmin. And it's my number two game of the year because I think it is the ultimate Pikmin experience. It takes everything good about one, two, and three. All these games, they focus kind of on different aspects. Pikmin 1 really focuses on time management and doing puzzles and exploration. Pikmin 2 is really focused on the caves, these kind of smaller, linear experiences where you really need to be careful. They're more obstacle courses. Uh, Pikmin 3, a bit heavier on exploration and overworld puzzles. And Pikmin 4 has all those things together. You've got the time management, you've got the smaller puzzles in the caves, and you've got the more open exploration elements. And they nail every single aspect of it. It took everything good about those games and made it even better. Uh, I think when we talked about it on our Pikmin 4 episode, I was on the fourth stage and there are six stages in the game. And this game is a bit unusual because the credits roll at about, I want to say 60% through the game. The credits roll. Really? Yeah, so it's very weird. I think just because the game is actually quite long, it took me about 35 hours to 100%. Which okay. is pretty absurd for a Pikmin game. Pikmin 1 is a four-hour game. And yeah, it's not even long. Pikmin 3 Deluxe, I pretty much 100%ed it. It's about 15 hours to 100%. And that's doing the DLC. That's doing the challenge mode. But Pikmin 4, at 35 hours, is basically as long as a JRPG. It just has so much content in the game. It's really absurd about how much they packed into it. And you roll credits after World or Level 4. But there's still two more big levels after that. And that's not even including these extra mini modes and other challenges that we'll get into. But the game is just so rich with content. There's these huge worlds to explore. And my favorite part of Pikmin games are what Pikmin 3 really focused on is that you're put into this new area and you explore this huge world and you do these puzzles in the world. And these puzzles, they help you navigate the terrain better. So you build Mm -hmm. a bridge. And then you can go to a new area or you, oh, you've knocked something down. And now you can access this part of the map much faster than before. That's my favorite part of the Pikmin games. And Pikmin 4 really focuses on that. I'm with you on that part of the exploration, the the overworld exploration where you can find different shortcuts through building bridges or tearing down walls. I said in our Pikmin 4 episode, I've only played the original Pikmin and the demo that I played of Pikmin 4 in preparation for that. But one of the most fun aspects is where you can look at the lay of a map, of this overworld map, and 
find these barriers, whether it's a bridge or the need of a bridge or a wall, and you might not be able to do anything just yet until you have the proper Pikmin for it. But once you do, then you can effectively optimize that map by tearing down specific walls. And it, it almost, it's that sense of satisfaction of, okay, I did something this way once before, but now I have a way to do it 10 times more efficiently. And so you feel really good about figuring out a more efficient way to do something that took you so much longer the first time, if that makes sense. Yeah. The key word is Don Doherty, which Nintendo really That's, pushed yep. in the Pikmin 4 marketing. The concept is time management and task management. And that's still here in the game. Even though there's not a hard time limit, Pikmin 1 had a very hard time limit and day limit. Pikmin 3, you had a juice limit. You would really never run out, but still, you had to think about that. And Pikmin 4 got rid of it. There's still a time limit within one day. You can go as many days as you want. And you might think, well, if you take away that time limit, that really hard time limit, will that sacrifice the Don Doherty aspect of the game? Will it just be, oh, you can do anything at any time? You don't need to think about time management. And I would say no. You still need to think about time management because just inherently, you want to accomplish as much as you can within one day. So even if you kind of, quote unquote, fail a day or don't do everything you want in a day, I think players naturally, they're still trying to think about what they want to accomplish in one day. And so those Don Doherty aspects are in the game. And especially in the Don Doherty challenges where a leafling will put you in this other stage and they say, you have seven minutes to get this many points collect this many objects. And some of them are really challenging. Some of them I completely bombed the first go around. And I thought, how on earth could you do this in this time period? But if you think about it, if you use your Don Doherty skills, you can actually do it much better than you would think. So that escalation of, I had no idea what to do in this stage, to I figured it out and I mastered it. That feeling of satisfaction is really excellent. And that's something that a lot of other games don't really give out. Pikmin is a series that you really need to 100% to get the most out of it. I would say Metroid is also very similar to this, mm -hmm. where you could roll credits and then quit after about 20 hours. But I think to really understand everything the game has to offer is really important in Pikmin. And so it's definitely, and it's really just fun to 100% because it's always great to just see a big object and have your Pikmin carry it. That's always fun. Uh, whether it be a melon, whether it be 3D glasses, whether it be a wave bird on the GameCube, you can carry that as well. Mm -hmm. All the really fun Nintendo callbacks are really excellent. It just never gets old, no matter what you carry. Just to see all the little Pikmin carry it is a lot of fun. And yeah, the game also adds Ochi, which is a super Pikmin. He's a really fun addition and really helpful for newcomers. I think a big reason why Pikmin hasn't taken off in the past is that it is a challenging game. Your Pikmin die. And the first game has a hard time limit. But Ochi, he really helps players understand how to manage things. You can collect all your Pikmin onto Ochi. He can cross water very easily. He can do something that your entire army of Pikmin can also do once you upgrade him. So he's really a great, I don't want to say a crutch because he's not a crutch because there's some things he can't do. But he's a really cool tool to help people get into the game and understand what to do. And just this other bonus thing, I talk about how much content the game has. There is a whole other game within this game where you play as Olimar and you're trying to collect your ship parts exactly like Pikmin 1. And you have this time you have 15 days. So it's basically a remake of Pikmin 1 inside the world of Pikmin 4. And oh, you're, okay. you're limited to the red, blue, and yellow Pikmin. 
So you're going back really old school, just those three Pikmin. You have the 30 ship parts and you have 15 days this time around to collect it. So you might think, oh no, is it, is it much harder than Pikmin 1? Not, not really because it's much more compact, I would say. But you're still doing puzzles and you're going through these levels in a completely new way. And the parts you collect are the exact same items as in Pikmin 1. And since I just beat Pikmin 1 a month before I played Pikmin 4, seeing all the weird Olimar ship parts in HD was a lot of fun. It still has the piggy bank mm. and that type of stuff in there. So now I understand, oh, why Nintendo released Pikmin 1 and 2 right before Pikmin 4. This is not something they needed to add to the game. They could have not put it into the game at all, and it would still be a great game. But they went the extra mile and put this remake of Pikmin 1 inside Pikmin 4. And it's quite lengthy. It took me three hours to complete Olimar's little side story. And yeah. it's just totally extra. You don't have to do it to beat the game. It's just a fun little thing for Pikmin 1 hardcores. And yeah, the, I was just blown away by how much content the game had, just everything. They really understood what is great about each individual Pikmin game and put it into this game. And I just had a great time with it. It's just an amazing game. If you've never played Pikmin before, this is the game to get. I can't believe Pikmin 4 is my number two game of the year. When they announced the game, I was like, okay, another Pikmin game. But now I'm all in on Pikmin. I'm ride or die with Pikmin. I can't wait for Pikmin 5 <laughs> or whatever else they have in the series. So I'm really glad that I got into the series this year. Pikmin 4, my number two game of the year. It seems like a lot of Nintendo properties got a big breath of fresh air put into them. Not just Pikmin, but Kirby. Kirby is like yeah. it's a popular series, but in general, it's nowhere near your Marios and Zeldas. Metroid. Metroid Dread was one of the best-selling games in the entire Metroid series. In for how much Metroid gets love from its fan base and from retro gamers, in general, it does not sell well. So it, it seems like the Switch has really been this revitalization machine for a lot of these franchises that Nintendo created, trying to find some new IPs. Though obviously Metroid was there at the birth of Mario and Zelda and all that other stuff. But anyway, I digress. So in Pikmin, I'm not surprised it took so long. I, I, I actually am not because it's a in essence it is an rts game and hmm. rts games are very is a very niche genre it's a very nintendo way a very nintendo approach to an rts game but it is still an rts game just like i said very unique and so i'm not surprised it, it took so long but it's been doing pretty well i'm happy you're a fan of it because i do eventually want to do a pikmin 2 episode and it looks now i have a guest to, uh, for that so i'll have when, whenever i get around to actually beating it for myself i will have to invite you onto the show and we can do an episode on uh pikmin 2 so josh the time has come game of the year number one what is your best game of 2023 all right and we're getting even more new for once i'm not doing a retro game i mean i know bioshock infinite isn't that old but if you go by the retronauts rules of 10 years it's retro it was just scary to think but <laughs> the game i have for my number one overall it's a game that i have played before and i have beaten before it is ori and the blind forest have you ever played ori and the blind forest mono no i see them on sale on the switch all the time and i say i'm gonna buy it i just haven't gotten around to it yet do you like metroidvanias actually i, I like metroid but i haven't really delved into other metroidvanias i kind of fall off of metroidvanias if i get too confused I don't think you'll get too confused with Ori. Ori is a Metroidvania. It 
came out in 2015, so it is eight years old now. There's a definitive edition that adds a whole new area of the world to explore. But Ori in the Blind Forest, you play as this little wood sprite type of thing named Ori. You are trying to save the forest after its kind of spirit got stolen. You have to explore through this world and... Basically, you have to restore three different elements of power. And so they're essentially kind of Zelda-ish too. There's three different dungeons you have to go to. And then you have to restore the the one part of nature in each temple in order to restore the balance of nature in, in this world. It's wonderful. It is charming. It is stunningly beautiful one of the best soundtracks i've ever heard gareth coker is the composer for it and i've actually interviewed him on my podcast about a year ago or so the soundtrack for both those games are fantastic what the reason i put this game at number one two reasons one the first 10 minutes of the game will emotionally cripple you it's really well done the second reason i put it as my number one one of the few times where a game teaches its mechanics so fluidly where you are learning and you're mastering the mechanics as the game ramps up in difficulty it never feels too insurmountable no matter what portion of the game i'm at it's not even that long of game it's an eight to ten hour experience i can't recommend this game enough man i i think the storyline is great it's told really well it looks like an illustration come to life the soundtrack's fantastic the gameplay just i can't get over how good it is and it just it it blew me away i could not believe how much fun i had with it and will of the wisps was fantastic as well i got the collector's edition of that because i loved the first game so much so ori in the blind forest is my number one man i can't sing this game's praises enough i love this game yeah i definitely hear a lot of people's talk about it and it has a really distinct art style and I, I love 2d platformers in general there's just so many on my list that i promise i'll play i just haven't gotten around to yet but i need to dedicate a month or so to get through all the 2d platformers i want to touch and yeah this one also i've really been paying attention to it for a long time i just haven't made the leap yet and it is on switch so it's there it's just waiting for me to check it out okay so i think we can get into my game of the year. Now, this is probably not a surprise if you've ever listened to the podcast. It is likely the most discussed game on the podcast in terms of counting all the seconds I have talked or guests have talked about this game. <laughs> I think and I know what you're going to say. So, so I won't take a whole lot of time explaining it because I spent many, many episodes talking about the game both before and after launch, but it is none other than The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom from mm -hmm. EPD3, the Zelda team, directed by Fujibayashi, produced by Eiji Aonuma. So the veterans are back to give us this amazing game that really exceeded expectations. Now, Breath of the Wild is one of my favorite games. I would probably argue it is the best game ever made if we were looking at it objectively. And so following up to the best game ever made, not an easy task. And I kind of went into it thinking that they are not going to get up to the level of Breath of the Wild. Because how could you? Because uh, that game was just, sorry for the pun, but a breath of fresh air. It completely reinvented not only Zelda, but open world games in general. And it felt like a game that was made for me. We were talking about how they remade Checkerboard Chase 64 for me. Mm -hmm. I felt that's something only I would want. And Breath of the Wild 
it really hit everything I wanted out of a, not just a Zelda game, but a game in general. So it really felt like they interviewed me before they started production and then they just made that game. The sequel to Breath of the Wild, some things people were a bit weary about. They said, oh, we're using the same map, the same Hyrule. You think, well, part of the appeal of the first game was that the, the world was so different and so interesting. And to reuse it again, that kind of takes away some of the luster. But this game is answering the question, what if you theoretically had 10 years to make a game? Because if you think about when did Breath of the Wild start, the production of that game probably started about when? 2013? And since they're using a lot of the elements from Breath of the Wild in Tears of the Kingdom, it is like they have been making, eventually they made Tears of the Kingdom in a 10-year span. So we are seeing the fruits of a decade of labor, and you can completely understand that, okay, this is a game that feels it took 10 years to make, if not a lifetime to make. It's that dense, it has that much depth to it in terms of the gameplay mechanics and the richness of the world and how you explore it. Mm -hmm. And all the new gameplay mechanics completely change how you interact with the world. Any one of these could be the basis for an entire game. The biggest Mm -hmm. one, of course, is Ultra Hand, which, again, I love that Nintendo, they named it after a toy they made in the 1960s called the Ultra Hand. So for them to call back to that, that's something only Nintendo could do. They have that long of a history. So Ultra Hand, where if you've never played the game, you basically take any object and you can put it together. And there's all these new objects that they made called Zone devices, specifically to facilitate putting things together. One of the big things that you make, of course, are vehicles. You could make a car, for example. You can make a helicopter. You can make a flying motorcycle, which a lot of people did make. But not just that, but you can also make structures. You can just make your imagination is the limit. You can make anything you want. And they're really used both in terms of solving puzzles and also in combat scenarios as well. I made like this tank drone that I could just send out and it automatically looks for enemies and it shoots lasers and fire and ice and everything else you can think of. So it's just fun to drop that down into an enemy camp and see it go to town. And this is something that I just made by myself. So the Ultra Hand, it's just, you can make anything. It's really crazy about how everything works and it's not filled with glitches at all. It's insane how developers can release, you know, games that are broken beyond belief. Ultra Hand, the most crazy game mechanic I've ever seen in an open world game where you can just take anything from the world and stick it to another thing in the world. It's amazing how it works. And it's just so fun to use. And it can be a little clunky at times when you're first using it. It takes some practice. I can't lie. The game is using every button on the controller. And some of the buttons are doing different things. The game has just that many mechanics. But you do get used to it. Once you get the rotation down, then you can make things a lot quicker than you would think. Other game mechanics, Ascend, where you can just no-clip through the world, (laughs) which is, again, Mm -hmm. you can make an entire game just about this mechanic. It's just wild, like, okay, I'm in a cave, here's a ceiling, I can just pop up on the top of the mountain. It's unbelievable how they created this. And you see a lot of game developers talking about this game, talking about Ultra Hand, talking about the physics system, and they're blown away by it. It really feels like a game developer's game because a lot Mm -hmm. of things that people struggle with they're doing seamlessly in this game fuse again when you can combine weapons to anything you want the game mostly focuses on you're getting monster parts and you're putting it on a weapon and that gives you a a straight up buff to your weapon but you can also do many other creative things to your arrows 
you can put some food on your arrows and shoot it, and that would distract enemies. And then you could also put uh, bat wings or key swings on your arrow to make it shoot faster and farther. You can do oh, homing okay. arrows if you attach eyes to the arrow. There's just so many fun things you can slap together. There's so many things you can experiment with. No matter what you put, even if it's just weird or it doesn't do a whole lot, it will at least give you a little bit of a damage buff. It doesn't punish you for putting stuff on there. Yeah. And there's all these cool things you can't put on there that you might not know. If you put a mushroom on a spear, they will bounce away. Of course, you can put the ice Lazalfos, their tail, and make an ice whip, which is really fun. And the world, they're using the same map, but they have the new sky islands, and they have the depths, which is uh, the dark war of the game. And a lot of people criticize the sky islands because they're not so big. But I really like them because they are kind of like their own little puzzle archipelago. Imagine like mist is in the sky, if you can think of it like that, (laughs) where you're you're going through there and you're solving these puzzles. And I love the atmosphere of the Sky Islands. I love the music. The music is incredible. And there is a risk. You can fall off. And then, well, if you fall off, if you don't have a, a waypoint up there, you're not getting back up there until you climb all the way back to the sky. So that risk of like, if I mess up, I'm going to fall and plummet to the depths of the earth is really intense. And and then, yeah, the depths, the real depths, the underground level is just, I can't believe they put that into the game. It's the entire map just in the game again on the bottom. And again, atmospheric, creepy. And they're so smart in how they utilize all three different parts of the map. For example, Ultra Hand, you want to collect these Zonai devices to help you navigate the world. So all the Zonai devices are mostly in the Sky Islands. So you go to the Sky Islands to get those devices, and you also get material that heals you in the depths. And then on the surface, you have the questing. That's where you find, that's really where you level up Link, and you get weapons and armor and gear. And in the depths, Mm. that's where you find a lot of Zonite. And Zonite helps you build things. So it's this really awesome flow of I go to the sky to get this and I go to the depths to get this and I go to the surface to do this. So you're kind of constantly hopping back and forth. But the game is also very generous in letting you focus on whatever you want to focus on. It still feels fresh because of all these new gameplay mechanics. And there's so many great one-off mechanics. Buying Mm -hmm. a house, you can take photos of monsters and have the models of the photos in like this diorama. There's all these weird, fun side quests that you can encounter. And it's just really an epic piece of not just gaming, but I think adventure fiction. This is just an incredible adventure, not in terms of just a huge macro scale because it's a huge 150-hour game. If you play for 15 or 30 minutes, you can have your own little mini adventure, either through a small quest or just something that you encounter in the world. For example, the caves and the wells are just excellent additions to the game. Each individual cave has its own gameplay gimmick or something that you can find and discover. And I love how they tell the story through the world. The caves in the Zora region, there's one cave area that has a lot of Hyrulean architecture from the Hylians, like the people, okay. even, even though the Zoras live there. And the reason for that is because the lore of the game is that the Hylian people and the Zora people, they built the great Zora Dam together to help stop flooding. So, of yeah. course, there's Hylian architecture there. This is going back from the era of when they built the dam. Now, this is not something that they over-explain in the game. It's kind of background knowledge. You learn about it through exploring the game. And when you go to the Farron Woods, that is the Zonai's like, 
main base once upon a time. And the caves there are kind of Zonai equipment depots because that's where the Zonai were more prominent. And if you go to other areas that are Zonai heavy, the caves have a lot of Zonai architecture in them. This is not something they had to do. They could just make generic caves all over the place. But the fact that they thought about the lore of the game and they built the caves kind of around this is really smart. And it really shows how Nintendo is telling the story in the game. They don't rely on super long cutscenes. They rely on the world building and you kind of piecing things together to get the most out of uh, this amazing world. I think that what Nintendo does really well in this, what I admire most about Tears of the Kingdom is that if you look at how Breath of the Wild started, one of the things that people praised it for was the freedom it gave players to explore the mm. world you see that mountain off in the distance yeah you can just go up and climb it if you have enough stamina stamina you can go and climb it or if you know how to uh, manipulate the game's mechanics well enough you can go and climb it and that was what everyone talked about with the different move sets you were given this one in tears of the kingdom all right hold my beer we're going to make it even more <laughs> we're going to give you more control and more power than you thought you could ever have for nintendo to be able to build a playground in which it allowed you to break the rules that they probably never even intended they knew what they were doing they knew by giving you this yeah. rule set players are going to be creating things they could never have imagined and they're like yes bring it on test the limits of what we can do of the physics that we are giving you in this game and some things break some things don't and you can always tell when a game has a bigger impact is when they developers allow for a certain level of uncertainty it's amazing how well they iterated on the ideas of the first game in each of those series and specifically here in breath of the wild tears of the kingdom and how much more they added and changed and just refined it it's just it's truly incredible yeah, I completely agree with you. I think you really nailed what makes the game in general excellent and what makes Tears of the Kingdom even greater than Breath of the Wild. I can go on and on about they added this and this and this, but they really just take everything from Breath of the Wild. They fix all the issues, I would say. A lot of people had some criticisms about combat shrines or weapon durability. They address them and they put forth a brand new idea that I think works better in Tears than it did in Breath of the Wild. I could just go on and on about the game just forever. I'm sure you could have an entire podcast solely dedicated to the, to the game. It's that rich. It's that deep. It's just that huge. Just think of all the places in the world where you can plant your feet. I think no other game compares. I'm sure there's some games that are maybe the square footage is technically bigger than Tears of the Kingdom. But I think the scope is really unparalleled and how it tells its story and just all the things you can do. The ending is just... What a way to end a game. I won't spoil it here, but they go out on the highest of high notes. And yeah, I think I should wrap it up because I, I could talk another two or three hours about <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom. If you want to hear more listeners about me talking about Tears of the Kingdom, there's plenty of podcast episodes where I chat about it. But Tears of the Kingdom, I was expecting going into the game, it's not going to be as good as Breath of the Wild, but I was shocked to see that not only is it as good, it's possibly better in pretty much every way. I will say maybe Breath of the Wild, the story is a little better than Tears of the Kingdom, but that's a small nitpick. Pretty much everything else, I would give it to Tears. So I was blown away by Tears of the Kingdom, and I cannot wait for the next Zelda game. I don't know how they're going to top this one, but I've learned to never underestimate Nintendo. So mm -hmm. that was our game of the year. A lot of really awesome, unconventional picks. 
I was very Nintendo heavy, but hey, this is a Nintendo podcast. I do own a PS5. I just haven't gotten around to playing it a whole lot this year. I will play Baldur's Gate 3 eventually. So don't worry, listeners. So let's do <laughs> another countdown just real fast. Our five games of the year. So Josh, from five to one, what are your games of the year? All right. So my games of the year from five to one. Number five, Sheep Raider. Number four, Mist. Number three, Riven. Number two, Bioshock Infinite. And number one, Ori and the Blind Forest. My games of the year, number five, Kirby's Return to Dreamland Deluxe. Number four, Super Mario RPG, the remake. Three, Super Mario Brothers Wonder. Two, Pikmin 4. And one, The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. An easy slam dunk for a game of the year in my mind. My list is pretty tame compared to Josh's, but hopefully <laughs> you enjoyed listening to us talk. And if you want to hear more of Josh, where can we find you? All right. So the Still Loading Podcast can be found wherever good podcasts are given away for free. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. I'm over on those places. You can follow me on social media at Still Loading Pod pretty much everywhere. Blue Sky, Threads, Twitter, Instagram. I'm also on Twitch at Still Loading Pod. I would say check out it came out over the summer i did an episode the final fantasy fantasy draft it's basically fantasy sports meets final fantasy and trust me you don't need to know fantasy sports to enjoy this episode just a lot of fun a lot of final fantasy love and if you're looking for something a little more recent than that I did an episode called Rocking Chairs, Halo 2, and Land Party Memories. And that was a very personal episode of mine where I talked about this loose idea of gaming in a social space. I did a whole episode just about these formative moments of my gaming experience. So yeah, something fun with Final Fantasy. It's something a little personal with Rocking Chairs, Halo 2, and Land Party Memories. So yeah, Still Loading Podcast, all those places I mentioned before. Awesome. And listeners, the links to everything will be in the podcast description. So check it out. Josh of the Still Loading Podcast, once again, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Mono of Tokyo Game Life, for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure, and I always enjoy coming on. Let's take a brief ad break. We're the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. to say i have a bit of a cold so this segment and the next one might sound a little off but the show must go on this episode's feature is about japanese gaming pamphlets i know this sounds very vague but i'm talking about free pamphlets you can pick up at game stores in japan places like yorobashi camera or bit camera or Geo. you might think is there enough content to fill out a whole feature honestly no but i do think it's an interesting element of game marketing in japan and some of them are pretty fun collectibles so join me on this journey of collecting a bunch of paper that I will eventually throw away. I use the word pamphlets, but some are booklets, some are just loosely flyers, some are full-blown catalogs. They range from 2 to 60 pages, and many, if not all of them, are Nintendo-related. A lot of the ones I'm going to talk about today seem to be put out by Nintendo themselves. I was looking to see if they partnered up with some publishing group here in Japan, but there's no copyright on them or anything. 
So it seems that Nintendo's internal marketing team is the group behind most of them. What's fun about them is that they can be oddly specific or focus on audiences you wouldn't think of when it comes to traditional game marketing. As with a lot of Japanese print media, the layouts are really outstanding. And even if you can't read Japanese, or if you know everything about the game, flipping through one is a lot of fun if you can appreciate some good graphic design. And the best thing? They're free. They aren't handed out after you buy something. You can just walk into a store, take them, and walk out. I typically do buy something, though, if I want to grab some of the flyers. I don't know, it just feels weird to walk out of a store with something, even if it's free. I don't want any misunderstandings here. This feature is going to focus on my haul I got from Geo, a small media chain, and Yodobashi Camera, a big electronics chain. At Geo, they were at the bottom of the racks, but Yodobashi Camera had a standee for them right at the entrance of the store. So you can tell who cares most about displaying them. You'd think they'd want as many people as possible to nab some. I mean, they just end up in the dumpster eventually, right? The biggest and best of these free pamphlets is easily Nintendo Magazine. It's more of a shopping catalog than a real magazine with interviews or news, but it is magazine-sized, around 100 pages, and features these really nice glossy pages, so it does look like any other magazine you'd actually pay money for. These are fairly new. The oldest ones I can find date back to 2021, and I honestly don't remember seeing them before that. They're seasonal, so the newest one I picked up is the Winter 2023 Nintendo Magazine featuring Pikmin holding a Christmas ornament. I love the custom art they make for these. The Summer Mag had Link eating a watermelon, and last year's Christmas catalog had Mario in a very fashionable scarf. Inside the magazines are ads, recommendations, and even little mini features about specific games. Super Mario Bros. Wonder had six full pages dedicated to explaining the mechanics and power-ups. And of course, one of those pages is dedicated to Yuri Aragaki, who has appeared in many a Nintendo ad. The cool thing about the magazine is that it doesn't merely just feature ads you'd find in other magazines, but there's a lot of custom photography and screenshots as well. The pages for Mario Kart 8 have pictures of literally every single course in the game. Another section is dedicated to playing Switch over the holidays and recommends some casual multiplayer games like Momotaro Dentetsu. Another spread is focused on glowing characters, so you've got the Glow Pikmin, Lightbulb Kirby, Terra Pokemon, and yes, even Supersonic. These kind of out-of-the-box ideas are a fun way to present these characters and games to people. I won't break down the rest of the magazine because recently, they have uploaded the entire magazine in English to Nintendo's official website. I want to say originally it was just the magazine, then they had the Japanese digital version, and finally the English digital version. So yes, you can just hop over to Nintendo's website and read it for yourself. It's so well put together and if I was a kid, I would love to have something like this to peruse over. Something that gained a lot of international attention was the pamphlet for Super Mario RPG, which mimics the SNES game's original instruction manual. It's the same size and features the same layout as the cover, but this time with those glorious 3D models. I doubt the inside is the same, unless it too was about 8 pages, but it does break down the basics of the gameplay and introduces the characters. These pamphlets are here to inform people who know nothing about the game, so they are kind of instruction booklet-ish in theory. But this is such a cool idea and the perfect nostalgia button to push for a remake. Game-specific pamphlets are pretty common. The Super Mario Bros. Wonder pamphlet is pretty much the same size as a Nintendo magazine if you laid it out horizontally, but this one has much fewer pages. But still, it's about 10 pages of glossy paper with gorgeous color screenshots and artwork. There's a whole page for Elephant Mario. How can you not buy it after seeing that? And yes, Yui Aragaki is indeed on the cover. Another similarly shaped pamphlet is called Hajimete no Pikmin, or My First Pikmin. It breaks down the mechanics of the Pikmin series in general, but it's really a big ad for Pikmin 4. Earlier this year, I saw a pamphlet called My First Fire Emblem with the same idea, 
it's advertising the new game, but laying out the core mechanics of the series in general. Both Fire Emblem and Pikmin are definitely a step up compared to most casual games, so Nintendo is trying to frame them in a way that's not intimidating. The pamphlet looks great. There are these huge single-page photos of action scenes from the game and a fun lineup pic of all the Pikmin. If I was a kid and I was reading this for the first time, I'd be immediately hooked. But going back to the My First Idea, another pamphlet I picked up was called My First Nintendo Switch, which is focused on introducing the Switch as a whole to people. These have a lot of very clean photos of families enjoying the Switch together in the most well-lit rooms in all of Japan. Seriously, a lot of Japanese commercials and ads showcase Japanese people living in these huge homes with the most blinding white light coming from the windows. I like my home in Japan, but it's definitely not Japanese commercial quality. A lot of marketing in the Switch era in Japan and also in the States, has focused on showing people actually playing the Switch in different ways. And mostly they focus on adults holding Switches, though of course there are plenty of shots of kids and families. It's such an interesting strategy where most of the games are aimed at kids, or at least are family-friendly, but they do convey to adults that you should be using a Switch as well. Outside of the nice photos of Japanese models, it has clean photos of the hardware and a spec breakdown like the screen size and internal memory. There's a page dedicated to showing off everything that's in the box and some recommended software as well. Hey, they're all first-party games. What a coincidence. Another similar pamphlet is called Osuzume no Soft Tokushu, or really a catalog of recommended games. However, the cover's pastel pinks show that this pamphlet is recommending cutesy games. Obviously, the cutest game, Pikmin 4, is prominently featured. But you've also got Fashion Dreamer, Animal Crossing, Disney Illusion Island, Mono Debut Nicola, and so on. The final page shows off new pastel Joy-Cons, so if you are really into that aesthetic, this guide is for you. Some of the more obscure games also get pamphlets. I got one called Jangarian Monogotari, a game about hamsters. And believe it or not, this does have an English version called Tales of the Jangarian Hamster, which is a pretty literal translation. The pamphlet is just a one piece of folded paper. You open it, you close it, that's it. But it's a cute game where you raise a hamster. That's all it seems. But it seems to be getting some primo space in the pamphlet rack. I think that's pretty good marketing. A little kid can just grab it for free, or a parent can take it to show their kids on the way home from work. By the way, I badly want to do a feature on the podcast about the Game Boy Color hamster games, because there was an insane amount. Another one-page pamphlet is for Minadeku Kiyomi, Korokoro Comic Edition. Korokoro Comic, of course, is a massively popular children's magazine in Japan. Pokemon fans are well familiar with it due to it having news every now and then. I have to admit, I'm not super familiar with the Minade Kukiyomi series, but I do see it on the top of the eShop charts here in Japan all the time. From what I gather, it's like a minigame collection, but it has a very stark black and white art style. Again, note to self, cover this on the podcast. Another somewhat unconventional one, Chao Collection. Chao being a magazine aimed at young girls owned by Shogakukan. It advertises a few games aimed at young girls, including the Sumiko Garashi game, a fairly popular character in Japan. Pretty Princess Magical Garden Island, which looks like a farming game, plus two other games from the Wanyan series, which I just heard of now, one about a pet shop and one about running an animal hospital. So yes, games you aren't going to see in a Nintendo Direct, but I imagine these sell well enough considering how huge the install base of the Switch is. There's two Pokemon ones that's about, you guessed it, Pokemon. Nothing really amazing here, just showing off the new characters in Pokemon from Scarlet and Violet. One last found Nintendo one is a pamphlet introducing Nintendo Switch Online. Recently, they also changed the download cards with this exact same imagery, focusing on all the old box art and showing off that there are 140 games on the service. I guess you can't lie, but wouldn't 150 be more impressive? 
There's pages dedicated to retro games, to the original titles like F-099, and all that other fun stuff you get, like the free DLC and the oh-so-important cloud saves. I just think it's neat to see an ad in 2023 that shows the original box art for something like Pokemon Stadium 2 or Panel Dupon. Last one I'll touch on is not put out by Nintendo, but it is the 2023 Toy and Game Catalog from Yodobashi Camera. I'm sure these catalogs still exist today in the States, but they really remind me of the Toys R Us catalogs when I was a kid. The cover features the iconic clanging symbols monkey, which I promise to thoroughly explain when I do a feature on Yodobashi Camera in the future. Nintendo obviously gets a lot of coverage in here with a big Mario Splash page and a ton of Switch games laid out, again, not too dissimilar from those old Toys R Us catalogs, where there is a small picture of the box art and then the price. They also advertise some Yodobashi Camera exclusive deals, like a Switch OLED, one game, and a Christmas bag for 4200 yen. You can also save 550 yen if you buy two Switch games. Better than nothing, I guess. It's kind of funny to see what other games have splash pages. Fashion Dreamer has one. Square Enix also has its own page, showing off Dragon Quest Monsters and Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, plus a bunch of other merch. Game Pass gets two pages, as does the MetaQuest. The Game Pass one is pretty good, as it lays out a dozen of games you can play on it right now, including the hottest Xbox title, Persona 5 Tactica. I'd say there are more pages dedicated to games over toys, oddly enough, considering how big Yodobashi's toy section is, compared to the game section. Anyways, that's a primer on all the amazing free pamphlets you can pick up in Japanese gaming stores. If you are visiting Japan and just want some more souvenirs, these are free, so just go nuts. If you're in Japan, they're probably low on your priorities list, even if you are a hardcore game collector, but there are some really fun and creative ones every now and then. That's it for the feature, now for the news. What's the biggest news item these past few weeks? Obviously, the announcement of Poke Park Kanto, a new Pokemon-themed experience coming to Yomiuri Land. Yomiuri Land is a theme park that's technically in Tokyo, but you still need to take an hour train ride or so from the city to reach it. Poke Park Kanto is described as, quote, a place where visitors can enjoy the Pokemon experience in a lush, natural environment. I imagine it will be somewhat similar to Pokemon Wonder, an attraction at Yomiuri Land where you explore outside to find hidden Pokemon. I already covered that on the pod, but it was a while ago, so if you're a new listener, definitely go back and check out that episode, because I still think Pokemon Wonder is one of, if not the, coolest gaming-related thing I've done in Japan. Yomi Uri Land is well integrated into nature, so you've got the rolling green hills and even bamboo forests. Doing Pokemon Wonder made me feel like I was in the game, so to expand that and make it even more deliberate, I can't wait. I'll absolutely return to check it out. There were also some trademarks for Poke Park Kalos and Poke Park Paldea, so we might be getting more Poke Parks around the world. This is such an awesome idea. Is Poke Park Johto happening? As if there weren't already enough reasons to visit Kansai. Now, I don't expect these to be really huge. They aren't going to be a Super Nintendo World level attraction. Instead, it will probably be just some stuff they've built into the natural environment, along with some games you can play and some fun photo ops. But after experiencing Pokemon Wonder, I'm confident that they can nail the atmosphere of the game. No date, but let's hope for 2024. The Game Awards, it happened. Baldur's Gate 3 walked away with the top prize, and Nintendo did win three awards. Wonder got Best Family Game, Pikmin 4 Best Strategy Game, and Zelda nabbed Action Adventure. There were quite a few announcements, not really a whole lot for the Switch, but I wanted to run down my favorites. The big one is obviously Visions of Mana, a brand new Mana title from Square Enix coming in 2024. I'm not a huge Mana fan, I've only played Secret of Mana, but hey, that's a good game. I have been meaning to pick up the Trials of Mana remake, but maybe now I should just wait for Visions. The game looks gorgeous, and notably it is not listed as coming to the Switch. 
hmm, what could Nintendo possibly announce in 2024? Even if it doesn't launch day one on Switch 2, I do imagine it's coming to the platform. Though if I had a game that was coming out in 2024 that could run on Switch 2, I'd get it on the platform ASAP. A lot of games really benefited from being there early. Remember Snake Pass? If that game came out today, nobody would notice it. We got another trailer for Rise of the Ronin, or Ronin, I guess is more accurate, but it's coming March 22nd. It's an open-world samurai game from Team Ninja that takes place in the Meiji era. The setting is right up my alley, and I do enjoy a lot of Team Ninja games, especially Neo. I always thought that they should make an open-world Neo game and make it about 30% easier. It could be a huge hit. They're not going the fantasy route with this game, but it still has a lot of style and some bending of the rules. You can light your sword on fire and glide with man-made wings, so it's not a documentary. We also saw a big walk from House House, the developers behind the Untitled Goose game. It's a co-op online game where you explore a big world. You look like a silly cartoon a five-year-old drew, but the world is fairly photorealistic. The game looks really fun to play with people, and it's really nice to have a co-op experience that doesn't rely on combat. Untitled Goose Game was overflowing with creativity, so I expect a lot from this game too. The last game that caught my eye was Kemuri from Unseen, which is Ikumi Nakamoto Studio. Just a CGI trailer, but it looks to be a futuristic action game set in Osaka. Again, sold. Set a game in Japan and you've at least got my interest. Last bit of news, remember Nintendo Live 2024? Do you want to go? Well, you can't because the event was canceled. Nintendo says that they received threats delivered to employees and participants of a Splatoon tournament, and that Splatoon tournament was supposed to continue on to Nintendo Live. For safety reasons, they delayed the Splatoon tournament and canceled Live. This was a pretty shocking announcement. Nintendo rented out Tokyo Big Site, one of the biggest venues in Tokyo, and I have to imagine preparation for all the tournaments and exhibits were well underway. To cancel it about six weeks out is pretty wild, but I understand Nintendo's hardline stance and zero tolerance when it comes to ensuring safety at these events. Not sure if they will hold Nintendo Live later in the year, but if Switch 2 does launch next year, they will absolutely have some sort of live event and showcase, so I wonder how Nintendo handles that. Also worth noting that Princess Peach Showtime was supposed to have a demo at the event. Maybe now they would just release it on the eShop in late January. We'll see. Okay, that was a long one, so let's wrap it up. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It really helps with visibility. This podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter, Threads, Blue Sky, Instagram. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be on December 31st, the final episode of 2023. See you next time. Matane.